Welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast. With us today is Christophe Foulon, co-host of the Breaking into Cybersecurity Podcast and Senior Manager of Cybersecurity at a leading fintech company. Chris, thanks so much for coming on down to the ranch. Absolutely excited to be here and talk about my favorite subject. And that subject is advancing your cybersecurity career. First, a brief word about our sponsor. Time is the enemy of cybersecurity. Time spent identifying devices that are missing endpoint agents with known vulnerabilities that are unmanaged, that need updates. Time spent identifying cloud instances that aren't being scanned, that are misconfigured. Time spent gathering asset data. Time is the enemy of cybersecurity until Axonius. By connecting to existing data sources, customers get a comprehensive asset inventory, understand security gaps, and automatically validate and enforce security policies. Thank you, Axonius, for sponsoring this show. So let's dive right in. Chris, why don't you tell us a bit about your cyber history and your day job first? Cyber history. Been in the industry and in IT and security for over 15 years. I would say I started the hard way in help desk and moved my way up. Ever since then, I've loved helping people solve problems and helping them do that in a secure way. I think the helping people is the critical aspect that has been a theme in my career because I help them both with the technology as well as the people in the process. And that really excites me. And I love that about you. Your podcast specifically is about helping people break into cyber and getting folks who are just getting started with their careers a real leg up. And I think that's an amazing thing that you're doing for the community. So tell us a little bit about your day job. So my day job is I help a fintech company with their cybersecurity risk. I provide oversight. So I'm essentially a security consultant, but within the organization. So I have the fine privilege of challenging the organization to ensure that you're doing all their cybersecurity practices effectively. And when you're not, call them out on it. It's a great thing to do because then you're like, oh, I didn't think about that that way. And so having those back and forths is always an interesting day at the office. So your cyber history, you said you love to uh, help people with their problems and do it in a more secure way. And it sounds like you found the day job that's letting you do exactly that. Absolutely. I get to work with this fintech across all their different lines of business. So one day it could be legal. Another day it could be working with their banking line of business and another day within their internal information security system. So every day is a different day and every day is a challenge. Getting to work with every single part of the business like that and having new challenges and things to tackle every day, that, that sounds fantastic. I'm sure you love this job. Absolutely. All right. So to the topic at hand, advancing your cybersecurity career, I know that some claim there is no shortage of candidates for jobs in cyber. So that's the first question. Do you agree or disagree with that idea that there's not a shortage? I don't think there's a shortage. There might be misalignments with respect to expectations. So a hiring manager might have an expectation that they want a client with X number of years of experience working with X and Y technology at this price range. The problem is most of the times when they write those job descriptions with those expectations, they're really requiring a lot and not wanting to pay a lot for it. Or 
they're niching themselves down very, very particular in the type of candidate that you're looking for. And you're crossing off a lot of people on the list, including diversity and inclusion, maybe people from different cultural backgrounds, things like that, simply by making the job description so very particular. Okay, so you're you're summarizing. If I'm going to summarize what you're saying here, I think what you're really saying is we're doing it to ourselves as hiring folks. That there's not necessarily a real shortage. We've just created one for ourselves by by making poor decisions on posting the ads. All right, then let's look at that. How do we focus then on entry level positions? You mentioned being too particular and charging too much and wanting too much. So let's talk about actual entry level positions. How do we focus on them to open up rather than close the gates into cyber? Right? How do we open those gates for entry level people? I think, first of all, if you write your job description with a problem that you want to solve in mind without necessarily requiring a particular set of experience or a number of years of experience, then you can have candidates that come from different backgrounds that love solving those types of problems, and they can approach that problem with a new mindset. And that way you can target different types of individuals to come into that role with that problem-solving mindset to solve that problem. And yes, you will have to invest a little more in them as they get to learn the technology, but they have that curiosity. They have that collaboration. They have that learning mindset that you can't really teach anyone. Yeah, I'm a big believer in that. I always call it attitude and aptitude. The whole idea that those things, if they're right, if you pass my attitude and aptitude test, you're going to fit in on my team. The actual subject matter at hand, whether I'm going to assign you to run endpoint protection or you're going to be doing GRC or whatever it might be, those are all vocational skills that can be taught, right? And I'm in full agreement with you there. But this idea that I think you called it the learning mindset, I think there's a lot to that. I think people who have that natural curiosity, they sort of, they have to know what caused this really, that root cause analysis, that desire to drive in and dig in and figure that out, that natural curiosity, that natural desire to learn, and even that natural instinct to just tinker and mess with things, right? I think all of those are valuable traits in cyber. And I think you can come into those traits and have a career with those traits that's not a cyber career and transition in quite handily. That's where I'm at on it. What do you think about that? I definitely agree. I coach uh, a lot of individuals and most of the times they want to start over in cyber. And I highly advise them not to start over because they come with years of experience. They come with the ability to deliver on business problems and have that learning mindset. They have so many transferable skills that they can bring over to the industry that they just need to learn the technical skills. And I think with regards to entry-level roles, the other problem is, especially when it comes to backfilling roles, when a hiring manager goes to write that job description, they write it with the experience that the individual leaving the role has at that point in time because they're looking for a replacement. They're not looking at that individual two, three years ago when they came into the role that they only had a year of experience. Now they have three years of experience. They want someone else with three years of experience. And that's not how it works. That's a really good point. I hadn't thought about that one, but I've done that every single time. I'm backfilling a role. I'm looking at what the role is today, not what it was some years ago. That's interesting. I never caught myself doing that. That's a great point. So, all right, so we're bringing in outsiders now. We're bringing in folks that have other careers and we're opening the gates for them. How do they best prepare themselves to come through those gates, right? All these transitioning careers, maybe even those who are starting for the first time, you know, we, we've got what, education, certification, volunteering, internships, like what do you recommend folks do if, if you're brand new to the industry, 
whether you're starting out of school or starting out of high school or starting out of the military, or maybe you're transitioning from a whole nother career, like what's the best thing for them to be doing to better their odds? I would say based on my own experience and three years of the Breaking Into Cybersecurity podcast, the theme that has come through all the time is experience in one way or another. So whether that is experience through volunteering, experience through doing it yourself, some sort of experience, that's one way. The second way is demonstrating subject matter expertise, whether that is you doing your own analysis, you doing research and keeping up on the subjects, and being able to speak to that expertise within a job interview, within talking to your peers who might possibly refer you and having those types of conversations so that when they do refer you, they, they go, yeah, Chris knows what he's talking about, or Alan knows what he's talking about. We had this conversation the other day and, oh, whoa, he had some really cool insights about that. I think we should definitely talk to him. When it comes to education and certifications, I'm of a mixed approach there. I myself have a master's. I have associates in liberal arts. I have a bachelor's in business and a master's in IT. I loved it because I love that academic approach. But when it comes to that hands-on skills, it doesn't really give that. So if you're looking to get into a role where you don't need that academic approach as much and hiring managers are calling for something more hands-on, maybe some sort of certification might be more up your alley. But be careful because there's a lot of certifications that are purely academic as well. So you want to look for the certifications that make best sense for the role that you're going for. So oftentimes someone will reach out to me and go, hey, Chris, what certification I should get? And I go, well, let's take a step back. What role are you looking to get? And then based on that role, then we go back and look at certifications that might make sense based on their transferable skills, their experience, and what value that certification would add to their overall profile. That's fantastic. I avoid endorsing much of anything on this podcast, but I will say this. The GX certs to me have always been a really good practical hands-on style versus some of the other more academic ones you mentioned. So I don't know how expensive those are these days, but I always like, if you want that true hands-on, I always tell people, go look at GX. I don't know what they cost, but go look at them. And then there's some of the ones, you know, the more esoteric and of course, further along the career ones like OCSP, I've always, what is it like a 70% fail rate on the first pass of OCSP? Yeah. That's a legit cert right there. <laughs> I mean, your SANS, your OCSP, those are definitely the, the more hands-on one. Now you have a new one. Uh, I think it's a blue teamer one where they focus on that hands-on skills. And for individuals that are looking to gain that experience, maybe without the cert, there's a lot of platforms out there like Hack the Box and doing Capture the Flags where you can talk through your skill set through those types of challenges to the hiring manager to where you might not need that A-plus cert or that security-plus cert because you can walk them through, hey, this was the vulnerability I found. This is how I found it. This is the impact that it has on the business. And this is how I'd recommend remediating such a vulnerability. And if you can walk through a problem statement like that, you don't need a security-plus certification. So I'm with you on that one, but I worry about, brief anecdote, I had a buddy who applied for a CISO role. This was a veteran CISO like myself. He's been around the block. He's done the CISO thing before. It was a blind application. It wasn't going through a referral or a friend sort of thing. And the requirement, one of the requirements was that he had to have a CISSP. 
which by the time you've reached the CISO level, that might be a nice to have, but I don't expect CISOs to have that kind of low-level technical certification. I don't mean low-level. CISSP is obviously one of the pinnacles of the technical certifications. But for a CISO who's supposed to be focused on business, on soft skills, an MBA is a more appropriate background than a CISSP. I was shocked that that was there. And similarly, I think on the startup roles, I see the same sort of stuff where sometimes a startup you know, entry-level role, they're asking for CISSP. And it's like, wait, that's not attainable for an entry-level person. In fact, one of the requirements is that you have to have X years of experience before you even qualify to do it. And other times I'll see that they just sort of shotgun blast a bunch of them out there, like the CompTIA Security Plus and the CEH and the whatever. And they'll, it's back to your very first statement when we first talked about this, that the hiring managers are basically doing this to themselves. If you're putting together a job description for an entry-level position, and you're throwing out a shotgun blast of certifications, it seems to me you're doing yourself a disservice. What's your take on that? Absolutely. I mean, the only caveat I would give is that there are particular industries, or mostly if you're working for the government, where if you're a contractor, you need to have a certain number of individuals that might be on staff that have a certain certification. That could be the only time I see a CISO requiring a CISSP because they're going to be on that contract. They're going to be serviceable. So they have to meet that DOD requirement. Outside of that, it's self-imposed compliance regulations that these companies put on themselves. Like you have to have a master's or a bachelor's or a certain certifications. Yes, you're shooting yourself in the foot. The other way that they shoot themselves in the foot is the wording that they use, especially in startup in California. They have that bro culture and that bro culture will scare away females and individuals from different backgrounds that they won't be interested in working for a company like that. Just based on the wording in the job description, they cut their their candidate pool in half or more just by the wording that they use in that job description. Well, that ties into the next question I was going to ask you, which is, well, I'm going to keep using this metaphor of the gates. We want to throw these gates open wide and bring in everybody we can bring in. And that tells me then that diversity and inclusion, to your earlier point, are a must. And I'll even go as far as to say neurodiversity is something we should add to that pile. If we're going to open the gates, let's open the freaking gates, right? So what are the challenges there? You mentioned job descriptions that give away a certain culture and a certain bias. What are the other challenges in getting diversity, inclusion, and neurodiversity through the open gates? Like, how do we, as the hiring folks, how do we open those gates and let all these folks in? What are we doing wrong? What do we need to be doing? I'll talk to the neurodiversity aspect. When it comes to neurodiversity, as a hiring manager, you have to be open to someone that operates in a different manner than you might be used to. So, for example, that might have certain different neuro way of approaching things. They might be very attention to detail and you want to get them away from that attention to detail and it bothers you, but their skill and their attention to detail could be very useful in certain roles, like in a QA role or in a code analysis role. So you, you kind of have to find the right role that takes advantage of their neurodiverse background and makes the best use of them. Because if you put someone else that doesn't have that attention to detail in that same role, they won't be as effective. In Germany, there's an organization that took individuals from different neurodiverse backgrounds, found out what their strengths were, and used those strengths to put them in the best role for the organization. And these individuals would come in and produce 10 to 100 times better than the average individual in those roles. So this company took something that others saw as a weakness, found a strength in it, 
and then capitalized on it. And not only are the people in those roles happier and healthier, they feel like they're contributing to community in a valuable way. That's brilliant. And to your point, leveraging their individual strengths, here's the right role for your brain, basically. And honestly, that's what we're doing with everybody, isn't it? When we hire, when you're interviewing somebody, you're trying to figure out who the heck they are and what they're good at and what they're not good at. In other words, are you a good fit for this role? I've got a role over here. It requires that your brain does X. Does your brain do X? It's really the same conversation. We're just expanding the scope of it when we talk about neurodiversity. But as you as a hiring manager, can you manage that type of individual? So I think that's the extra step. Most neuronormal people, they have an expectation that someone will react in a certain way. But those neurodiverse individuals might not. You as a hiring manager have to be accommodating to those individuals and be able to work with them without getting frustrated, without taking it out on them and realizing that this is something that they have and find ways to work with it. Yeah. And again, I don't think it's too big a step for a good hiring manager, for a good manager. It's a logical extension of what, again, should already be going on, right? I had a worker on my team who was an extreme introvert had incredibly high anxiety about presenting even just to his fellow teammates. So I didn't make him do that, right? It's like, you go do this thing over here that you're great at and don't worry about it, even though I pressure everyone on the team to get presentation skills up to snuff and whatever. Basically, this guy got a pass because he just wasn't a good fit for that particular role. He was a great fit for what he was doing. And I think it's just an extension of that same thing. It's So to your point, it's not just when you're hiring, are you a good fit? But as you're progressing with the team, you've always got tasks in front of you as a manager You've always got people in front of you as a manager. And the whole idea is, where do I best align and match up? You're already doing it for skill set. You're already doing it for knowledge. You want your senior most guy who's knowledgeable about endpoints probably being the one in charge of your endpoint protection strategy, right? It's just, to me, it's an extension of that. And I think it's a great way. So how about diversity and inclusion? Not just neurodiversity, but you mentioned job descriptions that are sort of already scaring people away. Like, what else can the hiring manager do and what else can the practicing manager do? So there's several tools out there that they can use to run their job description through to ensure that language that they're using is going to be gender neutral, culturally neutral, background neutral, as well as you could have individuals from those backgrounds that you want to target more review those job descriptions, take a look at them and provide the feedback. Because oftentimes those individuals will have that keen eye for the things that would otherwise detract them from applying for such a role. That makes a lot of sense. Leverage the folks you've already got in your community. And then I'd love to learn more about those tools. Again, we don't share name brands on this podcast, but maybe we can put some links to some research on that in the show notes. So how about the rest of us? We're not a hiring manager. We're not a practicing manager. We're just somebody in the field, somebody who's already established in cyber. What can we be doing to support diversity and inclusion, right? What is allyship? What does that look like? I would say allyship, the core concept of allyship is helping those that might be otherwise disenfranchised to get their foot in the door, help support them. A lot of times they might have imposter syndrome. They might not be too confident. They might just need that extra step of referring them to a hiring manager who might otherwise not have recruited them or not have gotten them in their pipeline. So just being that individual that is open to helping those individuals from different backgrounds and inviting them into the community, making them feel welcome 
promoting them, not just within the role, but within the community as a whole. The other thing I would say when it comes to that is making sure that if you do hire them, that they feel comfortable in your environment. We talked about that bro culture earlier. And if you hire someone from a different background or a different gender and your culture isn't aligned with having those individuals comfortable in your environment, you're going to lose them really quickly. So as much emphasis as you put on DNI in the hiring practice, you also have to put that emphasis on DNI within the culture. So almost you have to start backwards. Your culture has to be accepting of it before you can be truly successful in diversity inclusion within your hiring practice and your overall organization. I get that. I get that. You got to follow through. And if you're not following through in the first place, to your point, it's going <laughs> to it's gonna fall on its face very quickly. So let's talk about, we're going to switch gears again and go back to the folks trying to come in through the gates. What are some resources for folks to get into a cyber career? Are there places you can steer them, listeners to this show? Where do they go? What can they do if they want to break into cyber? Well, if you're listening to this show, you're listening to podcasts. So podcasts are a great way to extract the experience from individuals without necessarily doing it yourself. So you can learn from their mistakes, you can learn from the things that they've done, and you can apply that within your own career, whether that is job hunting strategies, whether it is the way to attack a problem, things like that. So podcasts are very popular for me. The other thing that I would recommend are learning platforms capture the flags. There's course communities that offer training courses, things like that. Of course, I come from an educated background. I have my master's, so I would recommend colleges. But more and more colleges are having hands-on technical courses. Look for those as well. So you have a balance of academic and hands-on. And of course, your own self-research, reading books, reading articles, keeping up with the times. A really cheap way to learn a lot is you go through the news headlines, you figure out what was the root cause of the problem, what could be done to remediate the problem, and maybe write that up in a blog, share with others, and have a conversation around that topic. And you'd be amazed how quickly you can learn about a topic for free. All you did was read a news article, provided your commentary, put it somewhere on like LinkedIn or Twitter, have that back and forth with the community, and you can learn a lot. Yeah. Anyone who knows me knows that I tend to post a lot of questions on LinkedIn (laughs) specifically for that reason, to get that dialogue started. I'm a much bigger believer in throwing a question out to the universe than an answer, because an answer, people will either agree with it or disagree. And either way, they probably walk away. But a question, people will all step in and provide their wisdom and their guidance and their insights. And it's amazing to me how I'll throw out one question and get 100 different responses who all then start chatting with each other. And to your point, it can explode and just take off. And I, I love that. One more thing on that, finding a mentor or someone more experienced that can help you is also very valuable. Alan, I'm blessed to say that you've been helping me myself in my career for the past couple of years, and I'm very appreciative of that. And others should look for mentors themselves. I've been reading a book by Dan Sullivan, Who Not How. The core concept of that book is to find individuals who might be more skilled in a certain task than you, ask them for help. And then now you can collaborate and leverage the skills of the community to help you accomplish your goal. So by having a mentor or someone more experienced than you, you can extract their knowledge. You can have them help you with a certain situation, but make sure that you're returning that to other people because karma can have that effect on you. 
Yeah, pay it forward. And thank you for that feedback, by the way. I'm a big believer in not just being a mentor, but being a mentee as well. I don't care how far along you are in your career. You can always stand to learn, to grow, to evolve, to develop. I've got a mentor I work with. It's vital to me that everybody in the industry, no matter how far along we are in our journey, is doing both. And to your point, you can be that person trying to break in and already generating blog posts that are actually not just helping you learn and grow, but actually helping the community as well. I think every one of us, no matter how far down the journey we are, we can always do something that benefits the rest of the community to some degree or another. And that's one of my biggest pieces of advice I give every mentee is don't be afraid to share. You may feel like you're not there yet. It doesn't matter if you're there yet. You're never going to be there, right? Imposter syndrome is real, my friends. You're never going to ever truly feel like you're there if you've got any kind of self-awareness at all. So just start throwing it out there. Do it. Get out there and write your blog post. Put something up on LinkedIn. Put something up on Twitter. Ask a question, make a statement, throw it out there. And not to mention, I mean, for someone that has been in the industry 20 years, 30 years, they might not know of the latest platform that comes out. And if you can go in and understand that platform, understand the security vulnerabilities or the pros and cons of how they can utilize it, and you can share that knowledge with someone more experienced than yourself, they're learning from you. And simply because you're new to the industry and you're learning what's hot and new, you're sharing your knowledge with someone that might not have ever came across that platform. For example, like Clubhouse. A lot of people don't know about Clubhouse, but the newer, hipper folks have invited us to the story. And now it's an ever-evolving platform. I'm trying to get into that one myself right now. I've got my account and I'm still trying to figure it out. So listen, we're getting close to the end of the show now. I've got... uh, question I always ask everybody and a second question, if we can fit it in. The first question is, what keeps you going in cybersecurity? What makes you get out of bed in the morning and jump back into your InfoSec career? What motivates you? I would say that the industry is ever evolving. There's always something new happening, always a new technology. But I would also say that the themes are very similar. So the way to problem solve something usually stays very static. You just have to apply it in new ways. So you have to be very creative in your approach. And I think based on the evolution of the industry and the ability to use creative problem solving, that makes me jump out of my bed every day. That's fantastic. All right. So creative problem solving nonstop challenges, ways to apply old techniques to new problems, ways to apply new techniques to new problems. That's all fantastic. So that brings me to my last question, which is what are you looking forward to in information security? What's on the horizon for you that you're excited about? I would say really what's on the horizon for me, I feel like I've been in the industry a long time. I see a lot of people coming in. I've started to feel that my focus have shifted to helping those looking to break into the industry and help them grow in their careers. I love my day job, but I also want to give an impact to the next generation. So I love helping young professionals get to the next level in their career as well. So Chris Foulon, that's a fantastic answer. Thank you so much, not just for being on the show, but for what you're doing for that community you describe. Thanks for hosting the Breaking Into Cybersecurity podcast, just generally being a fantastic member of the community and really giving back to security. Thank you so much. Thank you, listeners. Y'all be good now. 